As our reading of scripture, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 31. Romans chapter 3 can be found on page 1196 of your pew Bible. 1196. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what, become of our, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 22. That is a letter to the church of Laodicea. And the reason that I've chosen this as a reading is because Laodicea is a church that is blind, a blindness. And the reason I've chosen that is because there's a certain blindness that comes with sin. And we'll see how Christ addresses this blindness. We'll start from 
verses 14 and 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So far, the word of God. Let's sing. The text for this morning is God's word summarized as in Hallelujah Catechism in Lord's Day 2, which can be found on page 518 of your book of praise. 518. sins and misery from the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. After, pre after the preaching of God's word, we'll sing in 28, stanza 1, 2, 5, and 7. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we come to the topic of our sin and misery, and I find one of the speeches or the talks, the topics that Jordan Peterson, um, the renowned psychologist and professor, uh, and a best-selling author, sometimes talk about very relevant. He talks about when he talks about PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder, he, he says, based on his clients and, and, and clinical practices that he has had, that when, when soldiers go overseas and serve in war, and they'll come back and, and they'll have post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's because they've encountered evil and malevolence. I guess that's ill will, wickedness, people doing things 
out of their own will, with intent. And sometimes that's when they see, encounter something so evil when other, that other people are doing. But more often the case is people will have a traumatic, traumatic disorder when they encounter evil within themselves, when they have done something unthinkable, when they notice that they were capable of such evil. And apparently he receives emails and letters thanking him when he talks about evil because he says when people understand, when they have a philosophy or some kind of framework to understand evil within themselves and wickedness, they can overcome uh, their trauma. That's just, that's just an illustration of how important it is to know our sin and misery. And perhaps we can even prevent some if we knew that we were capable of such evil and damage. Because sin is powerful. We sin every day. But you can really mess up someone's life by sinning. Or perhaps you can even end it in a matter of hours, minutes, perhaps. Or that can be someone else or even yourself as a perpetrator or a victim. Life might not be the same anymore and you can completely ruin someone's life with sin. If that's the case, or since that's the case, wouldn't you want to know that you have such a capacity that you could do so much harm and damage? Wouldn't you want to know that life is that fragile and sin can wreak havoc? Sometimes it feels like human beings are like a time bomb. The time is ticking, we don't know when it's going to blow up. We don't know where the next damage is going to be done. And if we have any conscience, don't we want to prevent something like that? So it's important to understand our capacity to harm and do damage. And as I've been saying, that's why knowing our sin and misery is so important. And that brings us to the theme and points. The theme of this sermon is the knowledge of sin. On the first point, we'll focus on its source. On the second, its essence. And third, its purpose. As Christians, we have a unique opportunity to know about our sin and misery through the Word. And also, as, as Reformed Christians, we get to focus on it through Lord's Day 2. And so we'll focus on the knowledge of sin and misery. We'll start from with the first point, the source of the knowledge of sin and misery. Now, we read in Lord's Day 2, from where do you know your sin and misery? And we read from the law of God. The source of our sin and misery is the law of God. It's the law of God. And I'm sure you knew that. But have you thought about the implications of that? Are we living out this truth, based on this truth? The point that I want to make is that the sin of the, the knowledge, ultimately, ultimately, the sin of the knowledge of our sin and misery does not come from our own conscience. And by conscience, I mean it's the faculty, it's it's the organ that we're given that that, that helps us to live properly, to, to do the right thing. 
uh, for children, it's, it's the voice that tells you to stop or, or to obey your parents or do or that the uneasiness that you feel when you're trying to do something that you're that is wrong. That's what I mean by conscience. And our knowledge of sin ultimately does not come from our conscience. So we'll turn to turn to Romans chapter three. You'll read in verse eleven, and no one understands. So what Paul says is that's how he describes our human nature. Right. It seems like conscience has to be trained by someone or by God's word. Obviously, if you're not, if your conscience hasn't developed properly, you will not know right from wrong. You'll see people like this who've been brought up in a, in a society that, that's immoral or who has been a terrible background that they do not know what's right or wrong. But what's scary, too, is that the consciousness can be corrupted, that we can, that the sin can blind us. That's, even if you have been trained, even if you have been educated in immorality, if you have even if you have been brought up properly and you know good and evil, the part is that we can become blind, we can will willfully deceive ourselves. That means we can tell a lie and we can believe it. And that is called self-deception. For example, if you have fallen into a kind of sin and have become enslaved to it, you might start minimizing the sin that telling yourself that it's not too bad. You might rationalize a way that you have some kind of reason, a good reason for doing that. And perhaps you'll reach a point where you do not feel guilty anymore. Right? Your conscience has been shut down. And that's our ability to suppress the truth which, which Paul talks about in Romans 1. Think about that. First, even if you have trained, you've been brought up properly, you can still undo that. That means that no amount of education, no amount of, of training can get rid of that. When you're in the process of self-deception, it might be the case that you're totally unaware of that. Romans chapter 3 verse 12 writes this, All have turned aside, together they have become worthless worthless or depraved. They've turned aside and they became worthless. Right? They were not before, but they became worthless, which points to, again, self-deception. Right? That tells you that conscience is not something you can depend on ultimately. It's not reliable. It's a mechanism that tells you, the mechanism that tells you what's wrong or right is not working. It's like you're driving down a highway on your car and your brake doesn't seem to be working. But there are no warning lights, there are no indications on your car because they're not working. You might sense that something's wrong, but you don't know what's wrong and how wrong it is. And that's, in a way, how we are as human beings. So individual consciences, like our own consciences, are not reliable. So what we do as a society is often to gather together and, and seek from collective wisdom. 
We rely on others to make ethical judgments. We have checked and checks and balances so that we could make better judgments. But what's also scary is that what can happen to an individual can also happen to a group level. And again, if we go back to verse 12 of Romans 12, uh, 3, sorry, Paul there writes, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. That again points that a group conscience also is not reliable. In fact, at times it's, it's people, when they, people come together as a group, it's, they become worse because the, there's a distribution of resp- responsibility, which means each person becomes less responsible in a larger process of evil. I mean, that happens when a mob comes together. Or think of what happened in the 20th, 20th century of Germany with Nazi Germany, the, the atrocities that happened. It can happen that the majority of people, a group of people, lose sight of what's right or wrong. I mean, we don't have to think too far from here. We can think of abortion, our stance, the, the country's stance on abortion and, and same-sex marriage, for example, or all the madness that is going on in this world. It's not because there are lack of numbers that people are making such wrong judgments. And it's easy to look at the world, to look at individuals or a group, and and point out the corruption of consciences, the corruption of their moral standards. But let's not be so naive. Let's bring that and apply it to ourselves. Because sometimes we think that somehow we can know what sin and misery is, we can know what God's standard is from Christian communities. Some of that Christian communities are immune to it. Or we might deny it, but we often act as if the knowledge of sin comes from the consensus of Christians. It's easy to think that what, what is right or wrong depends on whether our Christian community approves it or not. What's acceptable or not depends on whether people in our reform circles are doing it or not. For example, a, a movie or a, a TV series or an ethical stance somehow becomes acceptable since someone else in the church does it or watches it. If enough people are watching it, somehow it's okay now. In some group of friends or at parties or in locker rooms, Certain times, types of language becomes okay. Certain topics become okay. Certain lifestyles become okay. If enough people in our church, in our schools do it. More than that, it's not that some actions or behaviors are become acceptable. Due to peer pressure, it becomes almost as if you have to do it now to fit in, lest you become excluded too. That's an example of acting as if we know or we learn or the standards of God, that we know what is sin or not from gathering of Christians. Again, that's not what God's Word teaches us. God's Word teaches us that the knowledge of sin comes from the law of God. That's what Paul says in verse 20. Through this law comes the knowledge of sin. 
no doubt there is advantage. There is something to the conscience that is useful. There is something to the wisdom of the group. There is something to especially uh, of the wisdom of the Christian Christian community because that's because even if someone's an unbeliever because they are Im- there are images of God and also if they're Christians they're, they're informed by the law of God but ultimately the knowledge of sin and misery comes from God's law and this is exactly what Paul says explicitly but also in the way he argues makes his argument this becomes clear when he gets to the point where he's arguing that all are under sin that everyone is sinful how does he make his case how does he know that everyone is under sin and he starts with this phrase in verse 10 in the beginning of verse 10 as it is written then he proceeds to quote Bible verse after Bible verse well, the point is that he's not appealing to his own sense of morality. He's not, he's not appealing to the standards of the elders or, or the Jews. Or does he point or does he make his case out of observation? He goes to the Bible and points out how sinful mankind is, exactly proving the point that he's making. So if we want to conduct ourselves properly, if we want to know our sin and misery, we don't go to our conscience, we don't go to a group, a wisdom of the group, we go to God's word. And that's also why the psalmist in one, Psalm 119 writes, how can a youth, a young man, keep his way pure? And he says, by guarding it according to your word. Then he says, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not, might not sin against you. I mean, it's, it's saying more than the knowledge of sin, but he's saying, if I have my, your word in my heart, that's going to ha- help me keep your commandments, not sin. And again, this is exemplified, and, and Christ does it perfectly. When, when even the devil comes and tempts him to sin, and Christ defeats him by quoting scripture, and that is how we should know our sin and misery and guard ourselves from sin and misery. And that brings us to the second point, the essence of the knowledge of sin and misery. More like it, this essence of sin and misery. In question and answer two, that is the previous Lord's Day we read, what do we need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And first, how great my sins and misery are. But what is sin and misery? You would expect, if, if the previous Lord's Day ended with asking, okay, how can we know God's, our, our sin and misery? That you would give, be given an explicit um, explanation, a description of sin and misery, but we do not actually get that in Lord's Day 2. But instead, what Lord's Day 2 does is it walks us through these steps, these questions, so that we would arrive to the conclusion on our own. It talks about, okay, where can we know our sin and misery? And it says, from the law of God. And question and answer four, it summarizes the law of God as loving God and loving our neighbor. And then the, 
the fifth question asks, can we keep this perfectly? And the answer is no. What's implied is that not keeping God's law is sin. And the law of God is love, so sin is hatred towards God and our neighbor. That is the essence of sin, hatred toward God and our neighbor. What we see in this Lord's Day is that when we talk about sin, we're not talking about missing or disobeying behavioral, behavioral standards. We're not talking about actions and behaviors. Some of those can be met. Behaviors can be controlled and actions as well. But what we saw is that the law of God is not about regulating behaviors only. It includes behavior, but it's way more than that. Our God demands everything, including our hearts. It's a matter of our heart. It's, it's God's law. Keeping God's law is obedience that, that comes from, that flows from an obedient heart and a loving heart. And how are we supposed to keep God's law if we don't even, at, at times, meet the moral standards of society? The summary of Christ's in, in question and answer four writes that we shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all your soul, with all your mind. And how do we do that? We should ask ourselves, do we do anything, do we love anything in this world in such a way? And I doubt that this happens often. It happens rarely. And how are we supposed to love God who is invisible in such a way, to, with all our hearts and minds and soul. It's an extreme demand. In fact, it's an impossible demand. There is no way we can keep the law of God on our own. So the Catechism says, I am inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. So often we can be defeated. We, we tell ourselves, oh, so we can't keep God's law perfectly, which means I can't help but sin. So everyone is sinning in one way or the other. We often tell ourselves, well, no one's perfect. We are all sinful. Sometimes we feel like just throwing our hands up and saying, oh well, we're sinful. We're sinful. But this, this title, this Lord's Day, is, is a section of our sin and misery. And sin comes with serious consequences in this life. Remember that this essence of sin is hatred, hatred toward God and hatred towards our neighbors. According to Paul in Romans 3, he starts with rebellion against God, not seeking God. Then he goes on and talks about all the consequences, all the implications and, and outworking of this hatred. It says, no one seeks God. It says, there's no fear of God, which is our heart problem. It says, the sin makes you unable to do any good. But he goes on and he says, it shows how sin leads to breaking relationships with God, but also the breaking down of relationships with each other. 
He said he mentions deception, curses, and bitterness. These things are compared to venom of asps, venom of asps in verse 13. Under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, is what Paul says. Right, each manipulation, each cynical comment and gesture hurts the other, another. Each word leaves a mark. And then sin progresses and leads to bloodshed. And sin leads to misery. We're quick to say that we're sinful. But do we have, do we see these things in our lives? We say we're sinful. According, we're very quick to say we're sinful. We admit it, which is great. But we never seem to go further than that. What do we mean when we say we are sinful? When God talks about sin, he's explicit. He doesn't hide anything and he doesn't leave it vague. He lists them, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those are specific ways that we hate God and our neighbors. So it's when we want to, if we want to acknowledge our, how great our sin and misery are, we should seriously wake up and see sin in our lives as it is. As it is. Sin is hatred. Sin is harmful. And here's an illustration of what it means to see sin and hate. It's a testimony that I found online. This, this was written about two years ago. So, yeah. I'll, I'll proceed and read the testimony that I found online. It's about an alcoholic. He writes, The first time I drank, I was 16. I got very sick that night, but I did exactly the same thing the next night. I got drunk more often in college. After I was married, I would go out often with my friends to drink. The craving for alcohol became more important than anything. There were times where I would put off tucking my daughter in because I wanted to finish my drink. I would put off going to play with her or go for a bike ride for one more beer or one more glass of wine. My father had a severe heart attack. I depended more on alcohol when he died. I started to believe that it is what helped me get through that day, meaning drinking, and depend on it, depended on it more heavily. Right? This, this person clearly knows what his sin and misery is, and I would encourage you to dig deep in your heart and try to find, figure out, if you say, I'm sinful, to exactly be concrete about what exactly is your sin and misery. I'm not saying that you should share that, that you should hang your dirty laundry for everyone to see, but at least you should know for yourself how you are a sinner, how you are sinful, in what specific ways you are hating God and your neighbor. It might be lust, it might be greed, anger, jealousy, pride, or craving for power. Maybe you're a workaholic. God says, in their paths are ruin and misery. The, peace of, the way of peace they have not known. It might start small, but sin is powerful. It's not something you want to flirt with. It's not something that you, you use as an entertainment. It's not something you can control. And this is how Paul de describes the relationship between sin and us. He writes in verse 9, 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's how he describes the relationship between sin and every people, every person, mankind. We're not above sin. We're not even next to sin or side by side to sin. We are under sin. That means sin rules over us. And that's the misery we find ourselves in. Unable not to sin, yet suffering every consequence of it. Always sinning and tasting the fruit of sin, hating our neighbor and God, and experiencing all the broken relationships, all the bitterness and misery that comes with it. And that brings us to the third point. What is the purpose of knowing this? The purpose of the knowledge of sin and misery. What, what should we do now that we know our sin and misery, or at least get a hint of what it is? Well, obviously we're not going to use the law to save ourselves. Salvation can be only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, you probably knew this, and I hope you knew this, but you'll have to hear it again. And we will read this from chapter 3, again, verse 21. He just, Paul just said, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And he goes on, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this righteousness that Paul is talking about is God's imputed righteousness, the righteousness that God gives so that when God, whoever receives this righteousness, when God sees him, he declares him righteous. That is the righteousness that he's, he's talking about. Okay. Righteousness comes from apart from the law. And we do not use the knowledge of sin and misery. We do not use the law to earn our own salvation. And this is stressed often in, in our Reformed churches. And this is, I think, how this specifically applies in Lord's Day 2. Again, the introduction to Lord's Day 2, how we led up, we see in Lord's Day 1, is what do you need to know in order to live and die in the comfort, joy of this comfort? And then first we read how great my sins and misery are. I mean, the Catechism doesn't say this, but often we take this as, if I want to live in the joy of this comfort, knowing that I belong to Christ, first I have to know how great my sins and misery are. Right, I have to know how great my sins and misery are. Knowing my sins and misery will drive me to Christ. Knowing my being sorrowful over my sins will be making me appreciate our Savior Jesus Christ more. Which is all true, but we might make an error. So be careful that knowing my sin and misery does not become a requirement for salvation. But this is a fine point, but you might be struggling with this when you come to Lord's Day 2. Right, because we said, because as I've been pointing out, if, if you had to know the full depth of your sin and misery to be saved, you would not be saved. If knowing your, the full depth, if you have to plumb the depth of your sin and misery, and if that was a condition for salvation, no one will be saved. 
Even if, even when you reflect about yourself on the mirror to the mirror of God's law, you will not know how great your sins and misery are. As I've mentioned previously, our warning signs are not working. No one understands. In fact, thinking that we can know our sin and misery to its full depth is comes with an assumption. And the assumption is that you are capable, that the, the, the assumption is that you are capable of knowing your sin and misery. And that's thinking too highly of yourself. That assumption shows that you do not know your sin and misery, that you do not know how sinful and how incapable of knowing yourself you are, how blind you are. We are far worse than we think, and that's how great our sin and misery are. We are in serious trouble. But as, I've, as we've read in Romans 3, there, but God saves us through grace by in Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel. Even if we don't fully fathom the depth of our sin and misery, believing in Jesus Christ makes you righteous. Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, No one understands. All have become corrupt and depraved. But now the righteousness of God has manifested apart from the law. And there's a concrete example of that in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Let's turn there to the letter of the church of Laodicea. And as I've mentioned, here's a church that is blind, that does not know their sin and misery, who does not know how great it is. If you see verse 17, Christ just said that you're neither cold or hot. I want to spit you out. I want to vomit you out. In verse 17, this is what the church of Laodicea says. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, and not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, blind, and naked. Here is a church that's blind, that does not understand their, their depths of their sin and misery. And how does, what does Christ do about this church? He doesn't say that you're not going to receive any of the joy of this comfort because you don't know how great your sin and misery are, because you don't, you're blind. He doesn't say that you're not going to receive my comfort because you are blind. Instead, what he, see what he does in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, my, opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He doesn't hold knowing the sin and, our sin and misery as a requirement. He says, I'm knocking at the door. He comes to us even if we don't know how sinful we are. And he's knocking and he wants to have this intimate fellowship to eat and dine with us, with this church of Laodicea, and that is true for us as well. And there's a concrete example in Paul's life. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew God's law. He knew the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. And he says, but does he know, does he come across as a person who knew his sin and misery? And the answer is no, because he, when he recounts his past life, he says, in respect to the law, that he was blameless, that he was perfect. And that doesn't sound like someone who 
who knows his sin and misery. But later on, as we read the call to worship, he, he struggles, he sees his, his, inca- his inability to keep God's law, and also he says, I am the worst of sinners. Right? The, the fact, how does, he, how does a man who says I was perfect, that I was blameless in regards to God's law, later say, wretched man I am, and also saying that I am, I am the worst of sinners. And that's ha- that happens after, after Paul encounters Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. You could say that, that even the knowledge of sin, if you want to know the depth of your, knowledge and, of, of your knowledge of your sin and misery, Christ does that for you. I don't exactly know the, the exactly how that works, but it's, it's something like this, perhaps. If you want to see God's law, what, what it looks like to keep God's law, if you want to see God's law in flesh and blood, then you look at Jesus Christ, and he, he keeps God's law perfectly. So in that way, again, you understand the deeper, you get a deeper understanding of God's law when you look at Jesus Christ. And that brings the knowledge of sin. Perhaps that's what drove Paul to say, I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. Or also perhaps it's, it's, the, it's the, the work of Jesus Christ, the, the, the suffering that he had to go through, the, the, the extent of his work just shows how incapable we are because Christ had to do everything for us, to suffer for us, and to, to keep God's law for us so that we may receive that by faith. Perhaps that's what makes Paul say that he is the worst of sin and that allows him to recognize the sin in himself because if Christ had to die for us for that, that means that we are not able to do that. So even if you want to know the death of your sin and misery, if you want to know how great your sin and misery, you have to go to Christ. If you don't know your sin and misery, again, you will to Christ because Christ will make you know because he will open your blindness. And if you do know your sin and misery and, and see that you're incapable, again, you go to Christ. That's how complete of a Savior our Jesus Christ is. So when we, when we even come to Lord's Day 2 and if we, even if we confess that we have to know our sin and misery to, to live and die in the joy of this comfort, Christ is our answer. Believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. As a response to God's word, let's sing.